honored to be here and uh, delighted to bring the message. And as we prepare our hearts for what the Lord will say to us and instruct us this morning, will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we have just joined our voices in praise and the lifting of our hands to glorify you, Lord. And I pray for that continual ministry now that we have flown up. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will flow down that you will anoint my mind and my heart from what I've prepared. And as I have prayed now, will there be, Lord, an outpouring of your spirit to your people who have gathered here today? Lord, we thank you for the privilege of gathering in freedom. We thank you for the joy of gathering as a community of faith. And we pray that you would feed us and we would be nourished on your word. And we pray this all, Lord, for the renown of your name, for your glory, Lord Jesus. For we ask it in your name. Amen. 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 Well, for the past 30 years, my family and I have lived close to ACAC in a 150-year-old house. And over the course of those 30 years, we've embarked on many construction projects, a lot of house projects. And like most, they take longer than you expect and always cost more than you hope. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Well, our biggest construction project was a, a complete kitchen remodel. But before we could construct our dream kitchen, we had to deconstruct our old kitchen. We had to take the walls back to the studs, expose the old lath and plaster, so we could begin the work of rebuilding and creating a kitchen that was not just updated, but more functional for a family in the 2020s, not the original owners from the 1870s. We wanted something that was fully functional and beautiful and that met our needs. And to do that, we removed, and sometimes at great effort, had to demolish elements that got in the way of what our end goals were, or weren't in keeping with where we wanted to go. Thankfully, when we took off the Formica cabinets and raised the old ceiling, we found beautiful elements behind the walls, like an original brick fireplace. It was a wide-opened fireplace originally used as a cook stove, That was a perfect place for my new range because as much as I wanted to keep the architectural integrity and historicity of the house, I was not going to chop wood. So we had a nice range there. (laughs) But we also discovered as we pulled back the walls that our house wasn't framed with two-by-fours, but with beams closer to six-by-tens. We also found evidence of termite damage, but we were able to repair that before rebuilding 
because we had removed the walls. You see, by exposing what was underneath, we could be sure we were building on a solid foundation. So if you think of your life like a house, what would be behind your walls? If someone could pull back the layers of your life and look into your heart and your soul, what would they find? The previous owners of our house had wallpapered over cracks in the plaster and then painted with many layers. And we had no idea of that until the hallway ceiling fell in. Now, thankfully, it was on the third floor near the attic, and it wasn't nearly as catastrophic as it could have been, but we were left with a huge mess. You see, it matters what's underneath. And it matters what's underneath the surface of our lives, too. But we often don't know until we pull back those layers and have a look. And when you do, you can choose to either renovate and rebuild or ignore and go on. Because whether you realize it or not, what's underneath is the raw material, the things that frame your philosophy of life, your attitudes about success, your expectations for happiness, and they will reveal whether you are being conformed by culture or conformed into his image. So here's where Ecclesiastes becomes a powerful tool for us, because just like we deconstructed our kitchen, the teacher deconstructs common philosophies of life. He exposes them over and over and over again, calling them absurd, ridiculous, comparing them to a vapor or a puff of smoke. It's as if the teacher invites us to blow into the fog of our lives and see if there's anything behind it. As Pastor Allen has showed us, the word he uses is a Hebrew one that doesn't translate well into English. It represents something fleeting or transient or ephemeral. Like fog, it sure looks solid. You can't see through it, but it isn't solid because you can rock right into it. You see, Ecclesiastes deconstructs not by pulling down drywall and plaster, but by dismantling the illusions we've embraced in an effort to find meaning under the sun. And it invites us and forces us, actually, to look past the formulas we've adopted in our quest for happiness or fulfillment or an attitude of contentment and exposes them for what they really are. Now, because no one will really seek for a solution unless they're confronted with a problem, let's consider some of those rickety philosophies of the world. Those easy equations we rely on that can make us smug and certain and act as if we have life all figured out. How about this? The the myth that I'm in control, that I'm the master of my destiny, the captain of my ship. This is what Ecclesiastes has to say in response to that. For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they have gone? Or this one. The more I know, the more information I have, the more news I watch, the more degrees I collect, the better I'll be. And this is what Ecclesiastes says in response to that. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Okay, I'm one who's going to categorize everything into black and white, right and wrong. And I'm going to choose the right way because I know what the right way is. I'm going to stick with my way because I know my way is right, and then my life will go well. 
And this is what Ecclesiastes says. The righteous get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked get what the righteous deserve. This, too, is meaningless. Okay, so I'm going to lean into religion, and I'm going to follow the rules, and I'm going to be a good person, and I'll have a good life. And Ecclesiastes says this, Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? You see, Ecclesiastes challenges so many presuppositions about life, not to leave us hopeless and despairing, but so that we can see what's inside and the need to build something bigger and stronger and deeper and more in alignment with truth. Look, bad things happen to good people. You can either nod in agreement because you've experienced that yourself or you know it all too well because of the friends and family around you. Like a pink slip. And all of a sudden, you're out of a job. Or a shocking diagnosis that changes everything. A letter on the kitchen table that says, I'm leaving. A lawsuit, an accident, a fire, or a fall. There is no end to the things that can upend our lives. But it's those very curveballs that force us to think differently. And Ecclesiastes points out that there's so much about your life that you can't control And in peeling back the walls, it exposes what's really underneath, and it offers us a choice, simply this. When life slams you sideways, you can either throw up your hands in futility or walk forward in faith and rebuild. Scripture is full of examples of people who chose the latter, like Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth, who left bereft from Moab to return to Bethlehem and engaged in the community of faith and rebuild their lives, and they were restored and redeemed in part of the Hall of Faith. Or Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, exploited, wrongly accused, thrown into prison, left there for years, forgotten. But he rebuilt his life, not on the promises of men, but on faith in the living God. And, of course, there's Job. He had it all, and then he lost it all. And in everything, he never understood why. And God never offered him an explanation, but he did draw close and revealed more of his character to Job, and that was enough. Only the sturdy beams of God's truth will build a solid structure strong enough to shoulder the vagaries of life because the rickety philosophies of the world will fail us. But amidst all this dismantling that the teacher does, the teacher does indeed teach. And he offers some instructions on how to choose good building materials, ones that will last and will help us construct the right kind of house. So I found three threads woven throughout the book that will help us build using the sturdy beams of faith. And here they are. Let wisdom lead you. Let death instruct you. And let your heart delight you. Well, let's start with the first one. Let wisdom lead you. Now, the teacher has already pointed out, and we've looked at scriptures, that say that wisdom in and of itself will not satisfy. That wisdom, too, has an end. But he also says over and over again, wisdom is better than folly. Let's be clear, though, about the definition of wisdom. It isn't knowledge or academic achievement, wisdom in scripture is rooted in a fear of the Lord. Respect, reverence, devotion, allegiance to the living God. That's the beginning of wisdom. And to unpack 
what wisdom, how to apply wisdom, there's a short parable in Ecclesiastes. Let's look at it now. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it. And a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man, poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. So what's going on in this little story? Well, it begins by a declaration that the teacher is very impressed by the impact that wisdom can have. It had the power to save a whole city. It was besieged by a powerful king. He threw everything he had at it, but he couldn't penetrate it because the wisdom of the poor man won. Did you catch, though, the description of the wise man? Two times in those short verses, he was called poor. Why? Well, because in the ancient world, there was an assumption that if you were wise, you were also wealthy. But things are not always as they seem. And in this particular man, though poor, proved he was so wise that he single-handedly saved the city. But then in a cruel twist... He was not given credit for his remarkable deed or even remembered after the danger had passed. And I see no mention of gratitude either. Maybe it was because he was poor. The prominent and the powerful had pushed him to the margins. And the teacher says, in essence, that's messed up. But that kind of attitude is double-edged because they, the prominent and the powerful, discarded and devalued that poor man... And the city failed to be blessed by his wisdom in the future. And who knows what happened to them as a result. That is messed up. But notice, the man's wisdom still saved the city. And it saved his life too, and presumably his family. And God saw that wise man. God didn't push him to the margins. God recognized his good work, for he ultimately is the one who sees and records all. And he sees us as well. One more thing I see about wisdom is that it doesn't just land in your lap. You have to fight to get it. It doesn't automatically come with age. It isn't necessarily absent in the young. But like any discipline, growing in godly wisdom, growing in fear of the Lord, takes diligence and persistence and perseverance, as well as insight from the Holy Spirit. Do you know the expression, pearls of wisdom? Are you familiar with that? Well, think for a minute about a literal pearl. Do you remember how they were made? Think back to biology. A pearl is made in the, in the body of an oyster or another shellfish when an unwanted or foreign object makes its way into the tissue of the little animal. It can be a threatening parasite. It could be a piece of shell or sand. It could be some microorganism that works its way in there. And because the oyster has no way to get rid of it, it begins secreting a substance similar to the material of the inside of its shell. It's smooth, and it coats it and covers it layer after layer, making a pearl. Now, it's a slow process, 
And while it's one that's automatic for the oyster, it's something we can choose to make a deliberate choice to embrace. Because hard things come, unnatural things invade, threatening things enter our lives. You can't choose whether or not they come, but you can choose how you're going to respond to them. And as you learn to embrace it and submit it, as you learn to walk in faith with it, as you learn to hand it over to your Savior, for he has broad shoulders, and he can carry it, and he will help you, you will create a pearl in your life as you are instructed by the Holy Spirit and walk close to the Savior, forward in faith. So from pearls to funerals. Here's the second of the teacher's instructions I want to unpack. Let death instruct you. And this from chapter 7. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. Death has been called the great evangelist, and I think the teacher of Ecclesiastes would agree. But better to go to a funeral than a party? Sadness over laughter? Why is thinking about death a wise thing to do? Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century pastor who has been called the prince of preachers, said this, We admit that we shall die, but not so soon as to make it a pressing matter. We imagine that we are not within measurable distance of the tomb. Brethren, in this we are not wise. Death will not spare us because we avoid him. Like Spurgeon, the teacher isn't a pessimist, he's a realist. And since death is certain for all, he invites us to keep it in view. Now, certainly not to steal our joy from today, but to spur us on to really live, to embrace the abundance of what's before us. And the psalmist agrees, Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So why is numbering our days key to developing a heart of wisdom? Because anything you number, you're more aware of. It makes you less likely to be frivolous with them. It makes you treasure them. Now, as morbid as it might seem, I want you to picture being a fly on the wall at your own funeral. Just for a minute, imagine the people gathered. Imagine the conversations that they're having. Imagining, imagine the, the things they're reminiscing about or the qualities or things you've done or maybe things you didn't do. What are they talking about? Maybe not such a nice thought to have, but a valuable one. I heard someone say that we should be more concerned with our obituaries than our resumes. It's a wise perspective. One of uh, the teacher, I'm sure, would applaud because a tree is known by its fruit. The text points out there are two kinds of people at a funeral, the wise and the fool. The fool goes merely through the motions of mourning, giving little thought to the gravity of what they're experiencing. Maybe they pass the time scrolling on their phone, looking for the latest updates or news feed, trivial matters in the face of death. 
Because death can teach us valuable, life-giving lessons, but only if we have ears to hear. It teaches us to treasure each day that life is a gift, but one that is limited because we are mortal and finite. Death teaches us to hold everything in this life with open hands, laying up our treasures in heaven where they'll be safe, secure, protected, and waiting for us when we get there. And ultimately, death invites us to pause and think about how we live. What are we choosing to build with? By way of example, I want to share a recent experience where I allowed death to instruct me. My younger brother, Andrew, is also a Christian and Missionary Alliance pastor at a church in central Pennsylvania. And late, in late July of this past year, he suffered a massive heart attack while driving. He crashed his car. And the paramedics arrived quickly, and there were a million miracles that have been associated with my brother. But those paramedics had to shock him 11 times on the side of the road. He wasn't expected to make it through the night. And when I got there the next day, the crash cart was still parked right outside his room because I learned he had coded twice within the hours after his heart attack. As I sat there at his bedside less than a day after it had all happened, I looked at him all hooked up on a ventilator in a coma, and I had regret. Because I realized that since he began serving as a senior pastor at his church, I'd never been there for a Sunday service. And I told him how sorry I was and how much I'd missed that opportunity. Now, in my defense, I'm in church work too. It's hard to get away on a Sunday. He lives a fat four hours away. It's not something I could drive out in the morning. But as I looked down at my brother, I looked at death in the face. Because he was as good as dead, he was being kept alive by medicines and machines. And in that moment, I allowed death to instruct me. But praise God, death didn't win that day. Miraculously, and much more detail, I'd love to share at some point, of how the Lord interceded and brought a powerful healing to him. He is back full-time at his church right now. Amen. I know. Amen. So many answers. But what I want you to know is that I did make good on my conviction to go to my brother's church. And the first day that he was back, not to preach, but to attend and offer, walk his, his uh, flock through the Lord's table, I was there in the front row. And I was honored. And it was an emotional service. He joined his worship team for the last song because it was special to him and he'd asked them to sing it and he stood up on the platform with everyone around him in tears. And at the end of the service, he leaned over in true little brother fashion and said, wow, sis, why do you think everyone's so emotional? (laughs) And I'm like, well, you know, you're kind of like back from the dead, so it's kind of a thing. I really am a very sensitive older sister But brothers are very dense, and so you got to work with them. But really, in Andrew's defense, you know, he was out for most of his near-death experience. He was still coming to terms with his experience emotionally, and I had lived it in real time with his wife and family. I will make sure he has time to process it all as a very bossy older sister, but we'll, uh, we'll get to that another time. Anyway, look, as a follower of Jesus... We do not fear death. It has no power over us, but we would do well to allow it to instruct us while we are on this side. It will come for us all, and so if we are wise, we won't squander our days here under the sun. 
and receive each one as a gift and live them to the full. And now to the third lesson from the teacher today, arguably one of the most central lessons from the whole book. Let your heart delight you. So go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the realm of the dead where you are going... There is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. So here we are, back to where we started. We're told that the best thing we can do in life is to learn from death and live abundantly, to treasure each day and live it wisely. This, this instruction from the teacher reads like a command. He says, go. It's a wake-up call. You who stop squandering, have at it, get to it. There's no time to waste. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Stop living like you have all the time in the world because you don't. Even the good die young, so get at it. Stop complaining. Stop getting tied up in knots about politics. Stop worrying about the economy. Stop complaining about the weather. Okay, maybe you can complain about the weather a little bit. (laughs) But stop nursing your grudge and holding on to unforgiveness. Move out, correct the cracks in the plaster of your heart and deal. Live at peace with everyone. Take those irritations, take those unwanted experiences, those things that have forced themselves into your life, and allow the Lord to redeem them by holding them up to him and asking him to shoulder them for you. Begin turning them into pearls and make something beautiful so you can really live. It's a wonderful invitation, isn't it? Amen. And notice we're told, that's right, amen. Notice we're told to go eat and drink, but what's the right attitude? With gladness and a joyful heart. Eating with gladness or enjoyment means you don't rush. You don't gulp. You don't gorge. You don't make it about the food itself. You make it about the experience of sharing it with people around you. Maybe it means you get off your phone and you talk to somebody in the restaurant, even if you're eating alone. How many times have I gone and seen couples at a table, both on their phones? Friends, time is short. We know God doesn't approve of gluttony or debauchery or indulgence, but he doesn't approve of feasting. And this isn't an eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's pessimism, fatalism, humanism, and indulgence. Because the encouragement to feast is something we see all throughout Scripture. It's not just a theme in Ecclesiastes. It's, it's an understanding that Jesus embraced because he feasted. One commentator said Jesus ate and drank his way through the Gospels. It's really true. He began his public ministry at a wedding feast in Cana. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. And he broke bread with his closest friends, his disciples. So they would minister to him in the hours before his passion. Jesus lived in accordance with the truths from Ecclesiastes because he understood that time on earth is short and his earthly time was short. And so he enjoyed all of God's good gifts and showed us the way to do it. I'm sure Jesus enjoyed good food and lovely decorations, but unlike so many feasts in our day, the food wasn't the focus. It was the atmosphere created by those who gathered. The people in the room mattered much more than the menu. 
And that's a good word for us as we are about to gather in the greatest American holiday, Thanksgiving. And I say that with joy and expectation, one who hosts a large group each year. Thanksgiving is unique because it hasn't been stolen by retailers or suck dry of its meaning by the world because it remains just an invitation to gather and share a meal together with family, friends, neighbors, loved ones. And whether you're going to have a turkey and mashed potatoes or fried chicken and macaroni and cheese, whether you're going to have cranberry sauce out of a can or you're going to have pumpkin pie made from one you grew in your garden, it's not the food that matters, it's the fellowship. It's the the community of people around your table. So live fully. Embrace the abundance of our good Father, for he gives good gifts to his children. Live the abundance that God has given us all of our days under the sun. But remember, there's not an endless supply of them. We must learn from death. We must be led by wisdom. And we must do what brings joy to our hearts as our Father smiles upon us. You know, as I prayed in preparation for this, I asked the Lord, tell me what you want me to say to your people. And I felt as if he said in my heart, tell them I love them. Will you receive that word from our Heavenly Father today? Will you receive his love, whether this is a season of celebration for you or of sadness? Whatever you see as you look down the lane towards this holiday week and the start of the holiday season, whether life has thrown you sideways or you're standing in relative calm, The Lord wants you to know that he loves you and he's with you for he is love. And so with that message delivered, I'm going to close in prayer, but I'm going to ask you to stand as I do and receive the benediction. Father, I thank you for the privilege of gathering with these people and being ministered to by your word this morning. And I pray as we look forward to this holiday week ahead, I pray that we would decide to practice the presence of people, that we would be a flow through of your love, that we would feel so empowered and reassured of your love. Lord, we couldn't help but love the ones around us. I pray, Father, you will bless them and keep them. I pray your face would shine upon them and you'd be gracious unto them. And I pray as we all go forward, Lord, we would receive your good gifts and live life to the full. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.